Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Two states, two address mix-ups and two people shot. A young woman killed and a teenager injured. Two separate homeowners are facing charges for shooting someone who went to the wrong address. A parking garage collapses in Lower Manhattan. One person has already died and multiple others are injured. What will tell you what authorities are saying? Three years after the deadly CCP virus swept the globe, there are still key data points missing. Lawmakers say China and America's own intel community are holding back key information. A deep dive on Chinese Communist Party operatives targeting people here in the U.S. The DOJ's recent indictment naming the spiritual practice Falun Gong as victims. One expert warning the regime's attack on America is broad and pervasive. Lawmakers investigate the massive leak of classified documents by a 21-year-old. What they're asking the Pentagon to turn over and what's next as the suspect is set to appear in court. And a U.S. diplomatic convoy was fired on in Sudan. This comes as both sides fighting in Sudan agreed to a ceasefire. But how long will it last? Two recent shootings of people who went to the wrong address. The man in Missouri accused of shooting a teenager who rang his doorbell has turned himself in to police. And a woman was killed in New York while riding in a car that drove up the wrong driveway. The Clay County Sheriff's Office in Missouri said Tuesday that Andrew Lester has turned himself in. The local homeowner faces two felony charges, assault in the first degree and armed criminal action in the April 13th shooting of Ralph Jarl. 16-year-old Jarl was shot in the head and arm after he went to the wrong address to pick up his siblings. He has been released from a hospital and is recovering at home. Basically, right now, is just recovery and healing and processing and trying to understand everything that is happening. So it's a long road. The Kansas City mayor said he believes Yarl was racially profiled by the shooter. And some are questioning why Lester was initially detained but released a few hours after the April 13th shooting. Lester told police that he and the teen did not exchange words before he fired at him through a locked glass door. The homeowner said he thought Jarl was trying to break in and he felt threatened due to the size of the teen. While Jarl's attorney says the teen never posed a threat to the homeowner, it remains unclear whether Missouri's stand your ground law will be cited in Lester's defense case. In a Tuesday tweet, President Biden said he spoke with Jarl and his family. He also invited the teen to the White House. Just days after the shooting in Missouri, another wrong address incident in upstate New York led to the death of a 20-year-old woman. Kaylin Gillis was shot and killed when the vehicle she was riding in turned into the wrong driveway in rural upstate New York on Saturday. They indicated that they had been looking for a friend's house in the Patterson Hill Road area and had gone to the scene where we had the report of shots fired. Uh, they had gone to the scene in error. They were looking for a friend's house, as I said. Unfortunately, they drove up this driveway. According to the Washington County Sheriff, 65-year-old homeowner Kevin Monahan fired two shots from his porch as the vehicle was exiting the driveway. The sheriff said that no one is believed to have exited the car and there was no interaction between Monahan and anyone in the vehicle before shots were fired. Well, I, there was clearly no threat from anyone 
in the vehicles. There was no reason for Mr. Monahan to feel threatened, especially as it appears the vehicles were leaving. Monahan has been taken into custody and charged with second-degree murder. The sheriff noted that the suspect was uncooperative. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Breaking news in Lower Manhattan tonight. One person has died and multiple people were injured after a parking garage collapsed near Pace University. At around 4 p.m., the second floor of the garage fell onto the first, triggering all five floors to tumble inward. The New York Sheriff's Department parks vehicles at the garage, according to NBC News. Video footage from the scene shows multiple cars stacked on top of one another amid crumpled concrete. As you can see here, firefighters responding to the collapse had to pull back from the immediate scene out of concerns about the structural stability of the building. The New York Fire Department then sent in a robotic dog and drones to assess. The incident was also caught on tape from a vehicle parked inside the garage after there were reports of an explosion. Here's what New York City authorities had to say at a press conference late this afternoon. Oh, at this time, we have no reason to believe that this is anything other than a structural collapse. Obviously, that investigation will continue. Our preliminary response centered on making this area safe. That includes traffic control and evacuating the nearby Pace University building, which was deemed unstable at that time. We have six patients. There were six workers uh, in the building at the time of the collapse. Four of them have been transported to the hospital in stable condition. Uh, we have uh, one patient that, is, uh, that has died, and we have one patient that refused medical attention. Uh, this was a, an extremely dangerous operation for our firefighters. Uh, we responded to a call of a collapse in the building. Uh, we had firefighters inside the building conducting searches. Uh, the building was continuing to collapse. Uh, we made the decision to remove all our people from the building. Um, our robotics unit happened to be nearby. Uh, they were on scene very quickly. Uh, we deployed our robot dog into the building. They were able to give us a video uh, inside, and then we were able to fly our drones inside uh, to conduct an assessment and conduct searches. The New York Fire Department added that they believe everyone in the structure has been rescued and accounted for, but an investigation is still underway. And the city's Department of Buildings said there were no open violations on the structure. And turning now to a Senate report on the origins of COVID-19. It says there could have been two lab leaks, but key data points are still missing. Lawmakers tell us the Intel community is holding back. Here's NTD's Melina Wisecup with more from Capitol Hill. Three years after the deadly CCP virus swept the globe, killing more than 6 million people worldwide, researchers, scientists, and lawmakers are still grappling with the reality that they do not know how this virus originated. But in a rare expression of bipartisanship, both Democrats and Republicans agree that it's crucial to get to the bottom of it and agree that there's a lack of transparency and accountability. If you have nothing to cover up, why are you covering it up? The fact that we have the CCP in coercion with the WHO and Wuhan lab all still covering this up with no transparency means we should have zero funding for that. China has not been forthcoming. 
I think all three witnesses would agree to that. And actually, the Chinese embassy tried to stop today's hearing. An email we received from Chairman Winstrip's office said that the Chinese embassy here in the U.S. emailed him, encouraging him to cancel today's hearing. Meanwhile, other lawmakers tell us they're concerned that our own intelligence community is holding back. Take a look. They're pretty much designed to protect the government that, that they serve. And I think their unwillingness to, to reveal the true information means that they're helping cover up something. Our very government that the taxpayers are funding was complicit in spreading misinformation that could have saved lives. And this is actually a similar conclusion that we heard from Senator Marshall just yesterday when he released a 300-page report after 18 months of investigations into this. In a briefing with reporters, he told us that he's had he and his team have had a very difficult time getting certain information from the intelligence community. I asked the senator specifically what information they still need. He said everything instead of just bits and pieces. For example, he said there are they've had a difficult time getting certain uh, classified documents that they otherwise would be entitled to. And he mentioned that they're missing key data points that could actually help them prove what they concluded in that report. That is that there were actually possibly two lab leaks from Wuhan, but he says all of this is still inconclusive with a lack of that information. Senator Marshall says they still have a ton of unanswered questions that they're looking into, such as where tax money is going with regards to grants that are given for research purposes, as well as if the NIH had any way to monetize the vaccines, and also why the NIH decided to change the definition of gain-of-function research. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Tonight, we learn more about the two spies that were arrested by the FBI Monday for running an illegal Chinese police station in New York City. The indictment reveals that Falun Gong practitioners, long persecuted in China by the Chinese regime, were one of the spies' primary targets. The DOJ yesterday also charged 40 Chinese police officers for targeting Chinese dissidents. Earlier, I spoke with Levi Browdy, executive director of the Falun Dafa Information Center, who for years has been documenting the CCP's targeting and harassment of Falun Gong practitioners on U.S. soil. Levi Browdy, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Now, for many Americans, it's shocking to think that these kinds of things could be happening right beneath our noses. But for you, you're no stranger to these kinds of tactics from the Chinese Communist Party. So what's your response to these latest charges and arrests? Well, we think it's very significant. We also think it's very encouraging. Um, and as you mentioned, this is not something that's new to us. We've been dealing this for more than 20 years. Be it death threats, physical assaults, break-ins to our homes, online harassment, uh, interfering with our livelihood, threatening family members back in China. So there's a whole litany of of issues that we've been facing at the hands of, of CCP agents. So very encouraged to see the DOG, DOJ take this step. And do you have any specific examples of the Chinese Communist Party targeting Falun Gong practitioners on U.S. soil? Uh, so many. I'll highlight just a couple. Um, we have a Falun Gong practitioner who at the time was helping pioneer software so that people inside China could reach the free internet. He was in his home in suburban Atlanta. A couple of Asian men knocked on his door pretending to be delivery men for water, broke in, beat him up, wrapped him in a blanket, and took nothing from his home but computers. So that's one example. Another example here in New York City, actually, 
Um, some years ago, there was a huge mob that was organized to assault, verbally abuse, and sort of harass Falun Gong practitioners right there on the streets of New York City for many days. Later on, undercover investigators caught the New, the New York Consul General at the time uh, working in the consulate saying that he actually went to Chinatown and encouraged these groups to go after Falun Gong, and he's the one who started it all. So those are two examples. Now, we've had, across the country, we've had all kinds of things like diplomatic pressure, economic pressure. We've had countless mayors and governors and legislators get letters from Chinese consulates saying, don't support Falun Gong. If you do, you're going to lose this economic benefit, this political benefit. So this has been going on for more than two decades. Wow, that's really concerning. So why is it important, do you think, to every American that the Chinese Communist Party does not succeed in these kinds of covert operations? Well, the two main things that come to mind is first, physical safety. I mean, I, I think what people don't realize is CCP agents, people that often they're very thuggish, they result in, in violence, in attacks all around the country, and not just to uh, the Chinese diaspora that go after Americans. And so physical safety from CCP um, nefarious acts here in the United States is very, very important. The second thing I would say is almost like the integrity of our public discourse. I mean, as we saw from this indictment, much of what the CCP demanded these agents do is try and get bad articles put in our newspapers, try and drum up rumors and hatred online. So they are tearing apart um, the way we interact with each other here in this country. And so the integrity of our discourse, our ability to, to, to perceive each other accurately and not have a foreign communist government trying to pit us against each other is critical for our country. And I think that's the other thing that makes it very important. Indeed. Now, what more do you think needs to be done, if anything, to ensure that the CCP doesn't succeed? M more indictments, for sure. I mean. When you when you're actually indict people, when you arrest people right here in New York City for doing this kind of stuff, not only does that stop those people from doing bad things, it sends a critically clear message to the CCP that you can't bring your thuggish tyranny here to the United States and do all these things that you've, you know, they've gotten away with to, to a large extent over the last 20 years. You can't do this anymore. You will be arrested. Justice will be served. And even if you're in China, there are things to be done, sanctions and things like that. So. We need more of these types of investigations and more of these indictments. We have one minute left. Do you have any final thoughts to share with our viewers? I think the most important thing is to understand the sheer scope and scale of what this is. Again, this is these indictments, as important as they are, are the tip of the iceberg. CCP agents, thugs acting on their behalf, are going after not just Falun Gong, but all kinds of groups that they feel uh, expose the CCP's lies, expose the CCP's human rights abuses. It's pervasive. It's in our business. It's in our universities. It's in our media. It's in. It's everywhere. And I think it's really important to understand just how broad this attack is on not just dissidents but our, our country at large. And so, um, again, I'd call more and more indictments. We really need to bring these people to justice. Levi Browdy, Executive Director of the Falun Gong Information Center. Thank you so much. Thank you. Turning to the Supreme Court, a Christian mail carrier is suing the U.S. Postal Service. The carrier claims his postmaster refused to accommodate his request not to work on Sundays. 
Gerald Groff says his managers started putting pressure on him to work Sundays after Amazon contracted deliveries seven days a week. He says before that, his manager scheduled other workers to deliver packages on Sundays. But after multiple disciplinary hearings, Groff resigned in 2019, then filed a lawsuit. Under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, employers are required to accommodate employees' religious practices unless it negatively impacts the business. Government lawyers argue that his request negatively affects other employees and therefore impacts the business. The High Court is expected to decide this case before the end of its current term in late June. And lawmakers are now demanding immediate access to information about how a 21-year-old airman could leak hundreds of highly classified documents. This as the suspect is set to appear in court. NTD's Iris Tau is outside of the federal courthouse in Boston with more. New investigations into the massive leak of classified documents on the Internet. The House Intelligence and Armed Services Committees on Tuesday sent a letter to the Pentagon demanding immediate access to all the information about how much access the leaker had and what procedures were in place at the Massachusetts Air National Guard, where the suspect Jack Teixeira was based, and other lawmakers asking similar questions to the Air Force. How could this guardsman take this information and distribute it electronically for weeks, if not months, and nobody knew about it? Our, I've tasked our inspector general to go look at uh, the unit and anything associated with this leak that could have gone wrong. The Air Force said on Tuesday that it has opened its own investigation into the leak, and the White House on Tuesday said this. We're taking this seriously. We still don't know the full scope of what's yeah. out there, what has been uh, disclosed uh, inappropriately, and we want to get our hands uh, around this. The mounting investigations come after the FBI last week arrested a 21-year-old airman who had the highest level security clearance to top secrets. Tashir is now charged under the Espionage Act and is expected to appear for a hearing on Wednesday at the U.S. District Court in Boston right here. Reporting from Boston, Aris Tao, TD News. President Biden is using his executive power on multiple fronts in the way of child care and elder care. However, some say this is a mostly symbolic gesture. NTD's Arian Pazdar has the details. There you go. Yeah. Right now, the cost of care is too high for seniors in nursing homes, for working families with young children. Pay for care workers is too low. President Biden on Tuesday signed this executive order. According to the White House, the executive order Biden signed contains more than 50 directives to increase access to childcare and improve the work life of caregivers. The Biden administration says it's calling for investments to support high-quality, affordable childcare, preschool and long-term care. Under this order, almost every federal agency will collectively take over 50 actions to provide more peace of mind for families, and dignity for care workers and uh, who deserve jobs with good pay and good benefits. The goal is to make childcare and long-term care more accessible and affordable, improve access to home-based care for veterans, boost job quality for early educators, enhance job quality for long-term care workers, support family caregivers and more. However, Biden is asking the agencies in question to achieve these goals without adding any new spending. They should instead use existing funds already allocated to them. In his 2024 budget, Biden proposed $750 billion worth of funding for those areas over 10 years. 
but Congress didn't approve the budget. With regards to the funding issue and Congress approval, the Domestic Policy Council Director Susan Rice told reporters the President's not going to wait to take action to address our nation's care crisis. According to PBS News, the executive order's impact would be limited and possess more of a symbolic weight about what's possible. Child and elder care programs are very popular with the public. Tuesday's order can boost Biden's approval ratings as he nears an announcement of his candidacy for the 2024 presidential race. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up in NFL news, Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin, who collapsed on the field just three months ago, may be back on the field sooner than anticipated. We'll have that story and more when we return. Now to Sudan. Both military groups fighting each other agreed to a 24-hour ceasefire, but it didn't last. This came after a U.S. diplomatic convoy was fired on. NTD's Jason Perry gives the update. I can confirm that yesterday we had an American diplomatic convoy that was fired on. Um, all of uh, our people are safe and unharmed. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the initial reports show the group that shot at the U.S. convoy in Sudan was associated with the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF. The RSF, led by General Mohamed Hamdan Degalo, is a paramilitary group with about 100,000 troops in the country. And the RSF is currently in a battle for power against the Sudanese military, led by General Abdul Fattah al-Burhan, who is also the leader of Sudan. Al-Burhan and Degalo were once allies just four years ago when they led thousands of protesters in a successful coup against Sudan's former leader, Omar al-Bashir. A former security advisor in Sudan said the situation then can't compare to what's happening now. There was no enemy back then. This is the first time that two military forces are in conflict inside the cities. To have the Air Force bombing, this is unacceptable. Since the fighting started on Saturday, fighter jets could be seen flying over the capital, Khartoum, and one even appeared to fire a missile at the airport. Blinken also gave this update on Tuesday. This morning, um, I made calls to uh, Generals uh, Burhan and Hamedi, urging them to agree to a 24-hour ceasefire, to allow uh, Sudanese to safely reunite with their families, and to obtain desperately needed relief supplies. Both sides then agreed to a 24-hour ceasefire. But it didn't last long. It's unclear who began shooting after the ceasefire started, but the RSF accused the Sudan military of violating the ceasefire after just 15 minutes. Residents in Sudan are in desperate need of at least a temporary ceasefire so humanitarian organizations can bring the food supplies they depend on. A leader in one of the humanitarian organizations added this. We have thousands of volunteers who are ready, able, and trained to perform humanitarian services, but that will only be possible once that humanitarian corridor is assured by all parties. 
Also on Tuesday, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says Americans in Sudan should not expect a government-coordinated evacuation at this time. It is imperative that U.S. citizens in Sudan make their own arrangements uh, to, safe, uh, to stay safe in these difficult circumstances. We advise U.S. citizens to remain sheltered in place and to contact the U.S. Embassy if they need uh, assistance. And that is currently Jason Perry, NTD News. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin, who collapsed on the field three months ago, has been cleared by doctors to resume playing football, according to Bills general manager Brandon Bean. Bean said Hamlin saw three specialists and suffered cardiac arrest on January 2nd against Cincinnati. Hamlin's collapse and resuscitation on the field on a nationally televised game made national headlines. It also brought up plenty of questions, as injuries like this are rarely seen in football. Renowned cardiologist Dr. Peter McCullough, who at the time questioned whether the COVID-19 vaccine could have been at fault, told me today, quote, returning to pro football after a primary cardiac arrest is unprecedented. Standard of care for ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation arrest, is an implantable defibrillator which would preclude contact sports. Additionally, if COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis is the likely cause of the arrest and remains active, then the risk of a repeat arrest on the field is prohibitive. Hamlin has returned to the Bills and is participating in voluntary off-season workouts. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, a lot of playoffs going on. First in the NBA, a triple header as the Celtics host the Hawks looking to go up 2-0. The Knicks play at the Cavs down 1-0, and the star-studded Suns need a win tonight at home over the Clippers to even their series at 1. And finally, for you hockey fans, another postseason quadruple header of Game 1's tonight. As the Devils host the Rangers in a rivalry matchup, the Lightning play at the Maple Leafs, the Golden Knights of Vegas host the Jets, and the Avalanche begin their title defense at home versus the Kraken. And that is it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.